Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I'm so excited to be talking with you today about how to bring more fun and playfulness into our homes as parents. And to do that today, we have an awesome guest, one of my favorite Instagram accounts, and the singing parent coach is going to be helping us figure out how to be more playful and have more fun as a parent. So Ange, thank you so much for being here with us. I love all of your videos. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I would be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. I have a performing arts background. So I have been singing. I did my first musical at the age of five. I was in your A Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I performed all through college and then did some stuff in Manhattan and some traveling shows after college age, and then decided to trade the boards, as the actors say, for real life a little bit. So I have been running a nonprofit theater company nearby to my home in New Jersey for the past five years. I am vice president of that. And this is actually my last year there. But I felt like there was a real void in my life without as much theater and performing as I would love. So I had my first child five years ago next week, as a matter of fact, having a big birthday. And I have a son who will be three on the 27th of December, two days after Christmas. And I started thinking about, you know, your children start to get a little bit older. You start to think about what's your life going to look like as they age. And I started working through a lot of these parenting concepts, a lot of my own reparenting, digging deep into this work. And I thought, well, what is it that I am missing in my own life? And how can I sort of mesh it all together into something that I really enjoy? And so I started writing about parenting and then I started singing about parenting and I started occasionally rapping about parenting and it's a big mishmash of fun. And now I'm trying to share that with other people. Before I had kids, I actually got my certification to teach music together, which for anyone who isn't familiar are parent-child classes from birth to five years of age. And that was honestly a lesson in respectful parenting all in itself. I'm sure I'm going to reference this a few times throughout our time together. But the biggest secret for the teachers who were training was being told that the real students of the class are not the children. The students are the parents because you spend 45 minutes once a week with these families, but you're teaching the parents how to integrate fun and musicality into their everyday lives. And to do that for a lot of these adults, It takes the rewiring of 
you know, pretense, a desired result, things that they want for their kids that they often didn't realize until the instruments were in their hands. So you're teaching the parents how to let all of that go and have a good time together and model the desired behavior without overtly instructing so that they can take these little tools and go home and be the parents that they want to be. And I went through all that before having my own children, but I had nanny kids that I had brought to a class and I thought I need to get in on this. But it was such wonderful training for parenthood. And it, I really didn't understand at the time how beautifully it was going to work within my own life. You know, I was so young at the time, but I have been teaching up until COVID hit up until March and I bring my children and it's kind of a beautiful way to marry the person I was before kids and the person I am now. Awesome. So there was something that you said there in your introduction that I felt like people would want to know about. So this idea that when you're going to like a music class with your kids, and I totally took my kids to music classes when they were little, and I was one of the few parents who was happy to just let my kids explore the instruments that they were handed, to just have no agenda, no preconceived notion of what they were going to be doing, and just sit there and like marvel at what they were doing. And I was able to do that because I had training in observational social sciences, you know, the way, you know, I was a social scientist, I was trained to be a good observer, to observe with curiosity and non-judgment. But the way you said it, though, it related to me, like how we can have more fun as a parent, because I think sometimes if we go into parenting or into our kids play, thinking about how they're going to play and how they're going to spend their time, if we have these preconceived notions, and they're not living up to it, that can suck a little bit of joy out of it for us you know, because there's pressure there. I don't know. I feel like I'm having trouble. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) I totally understand what you're saying. And that's why that's one of the things I wrote notes on, because I feel like having that background was another side of the coin to your background, you know, as a social scientist that I got trained as sort of previously just being a regular person. And I talk about this a lot. And I say it with my tongue firmly planted in cheek, you know, that (laughs) I'm here for the regular parents. I'm here for the people who showed up to this and had no idea what any of these terms were, didn't know how to do any of these things. You know, I joke that I packed my baggage in my hospital bag. Like I arrived at parenting with all of the stuff that comes with life intact and no tools. And I think most of us are like that. Yeah. And I think there are just events and circumstances that can really magnify those feelings or bring them to light. And little do the parents know who sign up for music together that sometimes it's, you know, really eye-opening in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, for you to, to sort of latch onto that and see so much to discuss in it is exactly what I was excited to come here to discuss. Because not only do parents experience that at home where they want to see their children growing or evolving or learning in a way that feels measurable to them. And, you know, of course, learning isn't actually linear, but people want to see progress. They want to see their kids going from picking up and sorting blocks to being able to stack them to being able to create something, you know, and and it goes from A to B to C to D, the kids don't have the same ideas, nor should they, of course, but that's a different story. So when you take that parent child dynamic of a parent wanting to be able to measure a child's play in a way that the child isn't in on and has no interest in, but then you remove it to an outside environment, where now not only does a parent feel like maybe a child's being evaluated, but the parent is being evaluated Mm -hmm. as well, alongside peers and strangers. It really is a cocktail for a lot of those uncomfortable feelings. And I saw a lot of parents who later admitted that 
you know, they wanted things for their kids in class that they hadn't realized before that. If I wanted my kid to do well, or I wanted them to share, I wanted them to be able to know how to drum. And I never gave two thoughts to what my kid would do with a drum until I saw them with one and realized I had an idea about it. Yeah. So, you know, it's that it was really like a double pressure of the parent, you know, performing as they thought a parent should, and then hoping that their child did the same. And as a teacher to be able to set a culture for a classroom of radical acceptance, and which mm. is where I first heard that term was in my training, and, you know, be able to make the parents feel comfortable enough to make their children feel comfortable. You know, I can only do so much as one person. So having the parents buy into this concept in a way that maybe they had never yeah. experienced before going to say a gymnastics class, there's a lot of like physical manipulation. You know, I went through some stuff with my oldest and quickly stopped when I realized, you know, I just really want her to just jump around and explore on her own. But, you know, it was, we were coming up against all these sort of societal expectations. And I would like to think that I was successful much of the time, but in the interest of honesty, I can say that I wasn't always that sometimes there were parents who felt like my class wasn't worth their time or their money because I wasn't teaching their children explicit things and because they felt like they wanted me to work through the material in a certain way or, you know, in a certain timeline and just, I couldn't shake that belief of theirs, yeah. you know, and that's tough. I mean, I can remember every single time that happened because that's what stays with you. You know, you try to measure your successes, but it's really what you perceive as failures that, you know, sometimes as humans stick with us more. Oh, but, absolutely. But that was such a lesson in how to check myself as a parent at home once I had my own kids, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm guilty of it too. I mean, even having that training, and I'm sure you go through this, you still rolling in there and you're like, I'm going to teach my kid how to do And you're like, why, you know? Yeah, I feel like I've seen this so much too since, you know, the shutdown happened last spring. Parents are home more of the time. They're putting together beautiful activities for their kids that they think their kids are just going to love. And the kids like instead grab the spoon that you use to spoon the stuff out with and like they go off and play with the spoon for a half hour. You know, they have nothing to do with the activity you set out. So everybody's listening to this. We will be in the midst of my 30 days of play challenge and parents will have just spent a good 10 days really observing their children's play. And now we're in the section where we are observing our thoughts about our children's play. And I think it's so important for us to be aware of what are the biases that we bring? What are our agendas? And understanding that like it's our kids play for the most part is like their agenda, what they want, what they're doing. Like, you know what? really need to get that involved in it. You know, like it's not really our job, you know, to tell them how to play. It's our job to create a space where the play can happen. But tell me about how do you manage yourself? How do you sit with discomfort where we become aware, oh, I had an agenda for how this play was going to go and now it's not going that way. And how do I hold back? How do I not get in there and start pushing my agenda? Do you have suggestions for parents who are in that place of discomfort? Yeah, I think there are two methods that I know I try to use personally that help me a lot. The first being that I have the word pause on a piece of paper taped to my kitchen cabinet. And I'm sure that eventually I'll, you know, when I find time somewhere, I will come up with a more aesthetically pleasing way to work than in my home. But for right now, it's quick and dirty. It's on a piece of lined paper with Sharpie and it's just up there. I am not the kind of person who is good at pausing just in general, in life, in any sort of way. You know, I'm always going, I'm endlessly energetic. I used to say that in my job interviews, I brought it to my parenting and that's a great quality until it's not. So I have a real tendency to, you know, take control, especially being in a leading position in a teaching position. I've had management positions, you know, I'm used to directing. 
And I realized how much that started influencing my time with my kids. So, you know, I'm going to set up our good time and I'm going to mediate their conflicts and I'm going to do all this stuff. So reminding myself to pause and wait until somebody other than me talks first always allows me, especially during play, to get the sense of where they're at and what they want and what they need from me, because this is their time, not mine. Like what I have to say is just not as important. It's ever important in that context, you know? And I think that's something parents buck up against a lot just in general, because they feel this need to teach and guide and enrich. Mm -hmm. And the enrichment is happening with or without your input. It's not like if we're not there doing the thing, being the traffic cop of play, that our kids are just going to like sit and stare at the wall. Kids are wired for fun. It's that we somehow get unwired. That's the real problem. And so how can we tap back into something that I promise we genuinely possessed at some point? I think when we think of it as disingenuous, when we think of it as, you know, a persona we have to step into, that's when it starts to feel really tiring and really, mm-hmm. you know, just like a dirge. Yeah, <laughs> so, an um, obligation and that's draining. Yeah. And so I try to tell myself to pause because of my personality. I have to remind myself to let somebody else have the floor. So that's my first tip. And my second tip is actually something. Something that I learned from music together, which is that a lot of times instead of bringing out the instruments, we would bring out kitchen stuff. Now, of course, everybody knows about banging on pots and pans before a lot of these kids in my classes. This would be their first experience with quote unquote misusing everyday objects. Mm. And so they were like, what do I do with this colander? You know, they're like, I thought there were going to be drums and tambourines and a lot of these kids were babies, but for the ones who weren't, you could see that they already sort of had ingrained ideas about what play looked like. So when you threw stuff at them, that wasn't, you know, specifically for that purpose, they were kind of thrown. I use that for me as an adult to disengage from a specific idea of play, where can we use something that isn't normally used for something else? Like, can we misuse an item? Can we repurpose an item so that I don't know how they're going to play with it? And I don't know what I could do with it. And instead of having cards on a road I've got like all pit balls on the pickler triangle and I'm like are they going to stuff them in are they going to roll them down the ramp are they going to put them in the rocking you know apparatus whatever and if I put myself in situations where I don't quote unquote know how to have fun then that removes me from being able to direct anything because Mm -hmm. there's no clear path so I think sometimes when you bring out the kitchen items instead of the instruments it's kind of a metaphor for shake things up a little and maybe you won't feel like there's a proper way to conduct you know, a play scenario. So sometimes I try to just, of course, it means in my house that like every single item is pulled out and swapped with every other item because my kids know that they're going to play with however they want. But you know, it's worth the mess. Yeah, there were a few things in there that I think are really important to highlight. And so I love this idea of pausing. I love getting clear on whose responsibility play is. I think I would love to encourage parents to really like get out of the idea that they have to make play happen, that they have to entertain their kids, that they have to do anything for play to happen. Play is going to happen in your home if you have children in it, no matter what you do, because they have to, they have this instinctual drive. And I love that you said that we lose as we age, that for some reason, and maybe we got messages as kids that we weren't playing correctly, or that it was time to grow up, you know, and then when you grow up, you don't play anymore. And that isn't true. We probably all have ways that we play now as adults. They just look different than how 
we did it as kids. But I really loved too that you talked about dropping the sense of responsibility and obligation that we have to kind of create this for them. You know, it's funny. I think of so much about open-ended toys. I used to run a play group before COVID um, where every Monday I'd get to hang out with a bunch of babies. And I had all these beautiful open-ended toys, you know, wooden toys and everything. But the favorite toy was always an aluminum bowl. That's it. I mean, it's good for banging. It's reflective. They can see themselves. It's, and I think it's so important for us to just get out of the way, take off the responsibility, like just releasing that I think can be so freeing and allows us to have a little bit more fun as parents. I don't know about you. Yeah, I totally agree. I always like to tell people that I don't play with my kids that often, but we have a lot of fun. And I think that that speaks to making a culture of fun in a household versus playing in a household because you can play and have fun if that's just the temperature of the home that you live in and the culture that you create versus like thinking of it, you know, okay, I have to play with my kid now. This is how I connect with them. If you release from thinking the act of playing in a specific child-led way is where and how you connect and have fun. And then the rest of your life, you know, it's like a series of menial tasks to be completed, like bathing and eating and dressing and whatever, then you've sort of derailed from the real point of it, which is that if you are able to tap into that sense of fun in whatever way is true to you, you're having fun bathing, you're having fun eating, you're having fun dressing. And then your kid does not need you for the logistics of play as much because that's not the only time that they get to have fun with you. Yes. And when the parent is having fun in their everyday life, that allows for authentic connection, which always feels better than obligatory connection. It always feels better to a kid, to a partner than the kind of the weighty connection that we do. If we are playing with our kid, we know, okay, we're supposed to get 10 to 20 minutes every day because Dr. Laura Markham says we're supposed to. And so we're going to go get our 10 to 20 minutes, you know, and then I'm going to go do the real work of parenthood or the real work of motherhood. And the thing about this is that we have so much to learn from children. They are already so good at this. They naturally make everything fun. They make everything play. My kids unload the dishwasher. It's one of their, you know, every other day tasks. My five-year-old doesn't like doing it half the time. And so half the time when she doesn't like doing it, she does it as a robot. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep. You know, you guys can't see me, but I'm making the robot arms. She picks up, she goes, here is a plate, Ellie. And hands it to Ellie, who's putting them away in the drawer. And she naturally makes menial tasks, like unloading a dishwasher, play and fun and meaningful to her. You know, kids are so good at this. I feel like if we just step back sometimes and learn from them on these things, they have so much to teach us. I have never had occasion to talk about this sort of publicly, but my own proposal from my now husband was delayed because I did 15 minutes as a robot in our home and he was getting really impatient for me to stop. Normally he indulges, which is of course why I married him. Like he's right there with me. (laughs) But this one time he was like trying to move me along out of, you know, robot time because he said, I want to propose to you, not a robot. Although that would have also made for a great story. But, you know, we were childless and talk about being who you are. I just did 15 minutes as a robot at home and delayed my own engagement. So your daughter is my people. I greatly appreciate that. But I I mean, you hit it on the head. Like, I think there's a lot of resentment around fun too. I think it'll feel like, oh, Mm. I have to make this fun, you know, and it feels like a chore. But like one of my own, you know, armchair analyses of this is that 
when we are doing that 10 to 20 minutes a day of play, that's on the child's terms. And so I think that a lot of times adults feel like, well, when are my needs getting met? If they do have any needs for fun and they feel like they're just indulging their child, it feels for them. But that's where having fun the rest of the time can be more about who you are and the ways that you want to have fun doing whatever it is that you need to do. Like, why can you not unload the dishwasher as a robot? You know, and the way that you know you need more fun in your home is when your fun takes your children by surprise. Because when they are totally confused and flabbergasted by you, like, you know, bathing them as an elephant or whatever, instead of just immediately buying in and being like, of course, this is what we're doing today. Then that's a great clue as a parent, like, maybe I need to, you know, loosen up a little bit and have this injected into our time together a little bit more, because now my kids are starting to just think that play is just for playtime. It looks specific. I'm on the floor with them versus we can enjoy each other and be silly anytime. Right. And that adulthood is drudgery. You know, one of my first Instagram graphics was you are an advertisement for adulthood. (laughs) What are you selling? What are you selling? You know, if kids say, I don't want to ever grow up like that, that kind of tells you what you need to know. I know the Toys R Us kid song like that just started playing in my head. But I mean, so this is what I can practically hear my listeners thinking right now. Okay, so that's all well and fun when you're a naturally playful, fun parent, you know, or when you don't feel overwhelmed by the heavy load of parenthood. But sometimes parenthood and, you know, motherhood and running a home, running a family feels so heavy that I've lost that, that I've lost my ability to have fun naturally. Or maybe like it just, I never even knew myself in that way as an adult, you know? What about those parents who are, you know, I would love to be able to be silly while I unload the dishwasher, but I don't have the energy and I don't have time for that because there's a million other things I've got to do. What about that? (laughs) Well, I think that's a perfect argument because I think once I told the robot story, you probably have listeners who are like, well, like I am not like that. You know, this lady is obviously bonkers. Oh, they're probably not thinking you're bonkers but they're probably thinking, oh, this is a naturally fun, loving, playful parent who playful parenting comes to naturally. I want everybody to know that that is not the truth for me. I am not naturally playful parent. It is effortful for me, but go ahead. Sorry. What's funny is that I'm actually recording this from my parents' house. They're in our bubble so that, you know, my two kids don't have to worry about being quiet. But if I snagged my mother, who's a few rooms away, she would be delighted to tell you that I was not a naturally fun child, that I was tremendously serious, that she always wanted to play Barbies with me. And she wanted the opportunity to finally like have fun and use her imagination. And I was not having it, that I was so cerebral and serious and And just not wired for fun in any way. And there are lots of reasons that that was the case. But what I also want your listeners to know is that I may sound super goofy now. It was hard earned. It took a lot of work to tap into that side of me that I felt kind of resentful, again, for a number of reasons. But so I'm not going to get into all that. But it took work. And it's not that I'm inauthentic now, but that journey of stepping into this part of me that I never felt comfortable embracing you know, wasn't easy. So I do want people to know that yes, it sort of comes naturally to me now. But it was hard earned. I did have a lot of resentment to get through to reach a place where I felt comfortable. I don't want to skip over that. Do you (laughs) feel comfortable telling us? Yeah, this is a huge barrier for so many of my listeners. And you know, I was lucky as a kid that my silliness was adored 
was appreciated, but lots of us didn't have it maybe bubble up naturally. I want to know what, like, what did that work look like? Cause I know that there are lots of parents out there who are struggling with this. They want to be a fun mom or dad or parent or caregiver, and they don't know how they don't know how to get over the hump of that. So I will try to obviously keep it brief. I did start performing as a young age and I always sort of felt like, even though I loved that work of being on stage, that people affected me to be that way all the time, you know, really outgoing and like the five, six year old who's in a musical. I mean, we can all think of like what those kids sort of look like and sound like. And I didn't want to be that person all the time who was performative. So a lot of times when I took the hat off, so to speak, I was just very serious. I did not want to have fun. I thought like there was a time and a place for it. I had very strong ideas as a young child about what people expected of me. And I don't know that they were all really rooted in reality, but I still had them and they weren't dispelled. And I think it was just a cocktail of a lot of unfortunate events that led to me thinking, you know, I was just going to be fun and give the people what they wanted and then be alone and quiet the rest of the time. But I just wanted to compartmentalize those parts of my life. I developed an eating disorder at a very young age. I had disordered Mm -hmm. eating habits by the time I was five and I battled it. It was the hallmark of my entire childhood and teenage years. And then I went off to college and I crashed and burned. I really dove into all my habits once sort of no one was around to police me. And I came really close to failing out of two schools and came back home. And I was actually just talking about this with my mother this morning. And I don't know if there should be like a content warning here, but I had a series of very upsetting deaths over the course of 10 months in my life. That started with my best friend taking his own life when I was 20. And I sort of stumbled into recovery of my eating disorder at that time, because I realized that the world was going to hurt me enough. And I didn't need to add to it by making things more difficult for myself, because I didn't need to, you know, I was so traumatized by what had happened that I realized I wasn't engaging in all of my disordered eating behaviors. And I sat down with my parents and I said, you know, I have a problem. But if I go back to this, if I sort of pick it back up, everything that happened to me will have been in vain because otherwise, what was it for? I'm not improving. I'm not growing. I'm not whatever. So I finally started the process of recovery and still kept losing people. I lost my last two grandparents in that 10 months, one of whom lived across the street from me. I lost my next door neighbor, my childhood dog. I mean, it was wild. But what I realized through all of that was, you know, I was trying to be taken so seriously and I had no idea how to enjoy myself. I had no idea how to find a reprieve from all of this pain that life was throwing at me. And I said, you know, life is short. Life is unexpected. I mean, it sort of sounds cliche, like here's your lifetime movie ending. But I felt like if I don't start the process of tapping into my own joy that I have to carry around with me, because life is just going to occasionally be terrible. You know, what am I doing if I just live as if it's already terrible? I was just kind of miserable and serious. And I had no levity to me. And it was really hard to get through all those events as a person who couldn't find levity. And so I started working with kids. And it was so healing to be forced into joy I actually had to nanny the morning after I learned about my best friend and the father opened the door and took one look at me and stepped outside and, you know, right on their front steps. I mean, he knew just by looking at my eye, I hadn't slept, you know, 
but I still showed up for those kids. And it was sort of my, I was forced to grow up. I mean, I was already 20, so I wasn't a child, but that whole year really changed me. And what's funny about it is that I became more youthful after that time than I had ever been prior. And I thought, well, sort of like, is it too late for me? You know, I dealt with all those things. Like now I'm, I'm supposed to just suck it up and be a grown up and yada, yada, yada. And I thought, what if I come at this a different way? So I started teaching voice and dance. I got certified to teach music together. I just spent a lot of time around kids and I couldn't stay in my own head in that way. Now it's different when they're people you grew right? Who look like mm-hmm. you that you never get to be away from. But at the same time, having that experience with children and seeing how easily they shift things off and how resilient they were and how I couldn't like bring all of my serious pain to the table and teach them how to do a time step, you know, with tap shoes on and everything else <laughs> that I was doing and, and how much they learned through fun. I thought like, can I just start being a little bit more fun in my own life? What does that look like? And I just, I don't really know where it came from. You know, I've always been a big reader. So I read like a lot of books on reparenting and, you know, a lot of books. But that just helped me kind of do the work quietly and then be with kids and get the chance to be silly in a way that that sort of felt extreme that if I hadn't been working with kids, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do, you know, being 20 years old, not going to be like at the club, you know, rhyming or being a robot, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) But, you know, I thought this isn't at odds with my pain. It's going to serve my pain. And, you know, it's a way for me to connect with it. It wasn't squashing it down. It was like freeing to say the beauty of life is that I can feel this great, tremendous pain, but also find a way to have joy. And at age 23, I got the comedy tragedy mask tattooed on my wrist. I knew that every great life is going to have a blend of both. And it was my promise to myself that I would not cause my own body pain anymore until I had children, which I knew would be painful in a different way. And I kept that promise to myself. And I forced myself to look at it every day and remember that, you know, I wasn't going to be that person anymore. But it was hard. And the other thing is, is that I had to do it because I wasn't a parent yet. So to have to do that work as a parent, when you're trying to run a household, and you're trying to do all these things is that much harder. Because I mean, not for nothing, I could come home and cry until 5am or watch Arrested Development and laugh, feel whatever I needed to feel as a result of what I was trying to work through. And it's, it's a lot harder when you don't get that escape, especially now when we're all stuck inside. So I can't say that I have the perfect recipe. I say all the time that I don't know where I would be if I hadn't gone through that year, because, you know, life kind of slapped me in the face. And what what would I be up to? You know, how would I be coping with things? I would never have been a robot postponing my own engagement, you know, I would not have that sense of fun. But I just made it my weapon. I made it, you know, the hacksaw through which I got through every painful thing that was coming at me. And I think when you look at it as a partner in your parenting and not an obligation and a Mm. way to tap into just a lens through which you can look at the world, not just at your kids, we could all enjoy each other a lot more. But it's easier said than done, for sure. Yeah, this is that playfulness and fun is an opportunity in our parenting, not an obligation. And thank you very much for sharing that vulnerable time in your life and your process. I love how you came to this realization that we are never either or. It's not this all or nothing thing that really we are both and, right? So we can have intense joy and happiness and deep pain all at the same time. So we're careful here not to slip into toxic positivity, which is not what you're talking about. You're talking about kind of 
how can I let this be more fun in this moment? That's hard in this phase of my life. How can I bring some levity into it? And that is a good question for us all to be asking, right? Especially right now when things are hard, things feel heavy. How can we bring a little bit more joy? How can we see that as a, it's not something that just magically happens, that it does take effort. It does take thought. It takes action, you know? It's really a choice. When I was eight weeks postpartum with my first child, one of my very best friends who does not have kids came over to visit me. Uh, my husband had just got back to work and, you know, I was struggling. So he came over and brought lunch. And I said to him, you know, she's two months old now. And I don't know if we're going to sell our house. And I don't know, am I ever going to start working again? And I don't know. And I was like deep in, and I know moms feel me here, deep in that like postpartum hormonal what is my life going to be like? Have I lost my identity? I haven't slept, you know, none of this. And he said to me, I don't know anything about raising children. I don't have any real advice for you, except be good at the thing in front of you. And it just stopped me cold. He said, you can't worry about all that today. You're not signing the papers to put your house on the market. You're not picking your career back up. What do you need right now? And what does your child need right now? And at the time, I applied that to sort of my life in general. But I can tell you that it's been, you know, almost five years since that moment. And there are times when I am playing with my kids or I'm having fun giving them a bath and I start thinking about everything else that I need to do and, you know, how we're ever going to get done and wishing we'd go faster. And I still hear, and I, and of course he's gloating, right? Because I told him, I told him this since then, <laughs> but that's really stayed with me. But I hear, be good at the thing in front of you. And so I think for parents who are trying to access more fun, the way to set themselves up for success, the way that we so often try to set our kids up for success is to, and this is a practice, really be good at the thing in front of you. To take those 10 minutes and you're not serving the later half hour by thinking about it while you're doing the thing that's going to take 10 minutes or whatever it is. So if you can be good at the thing in front of you, you'll enjoy it more and your kids will enjoy it more because you can't cram fun in if it's at the end of the laundry list that's about laundry, pun intended. So, (laughs) you know, I think that that was one of the biggest lessons for me was if I can't get it done right now, spending brain space on it isn't serving me and it's going to just make me enjoy whatever I'm doing less. So, you know, I think learning to block out the noise and that's another thing that's easier said than done, but it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice to be present, but you can't have fun unless your presence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, for me, and just to add on to that, because I love this idea of just what be good at the thing in front of you, like what does this moment need right now? I think that's something that's been really helpful for me in finding my own ease and joy and playfulness in my parenting, my enjoyment in my parenting, because sometimes things feel heavy to me, of the things I have to do, things feel like obligations. And so when I find myself in those moments, I take a second to pause and I get clear on, okay, so what is my goal here? So for example, I really like baking. Baking is something that I do for fun for myself. It's a way that I, that I play. It's an opportunity for creativity. It's something that I love to do. When I bake with my kids, that is not serving my higher goal, like my joy of that baking brings to me personally. And so when I go into baking with my kids, sometimes there is a feeling of resentment. Like I would really like to just do this by myself because it would be so much fun to just do this by myself. And so I have to shift at that moment what my goal is. My goal in that moment when I'm baking with my kids is not 
for my own enjoyment. I will, in fact, bake a batch of cookies with my kids, then send them off to play with a plate of cookies to take with them and then bake another batch for myself. That's like we give it to a friend or something that we're not going to eat, but that just so that I get the process of the enjoyment. I have to be really clear and firm with myself. Okay, so right now, like my like desire to have fun doing this baking is going to go onto a shelf. And right now, my goal with this interaction is to create enjoyment for my children. I'm going to hold a space of enjoyment and I'm going to enjoy being with them. I don't care if the cookies turn out. I'm probably going to make another batch <laughs> later. You know, I don't care if they're good. All I care about right now is that the kids are having fun. They're getting to do the things that they want to do and that we're doing this together. So your agenda, like what your goal, I think for an interaction is so important and being really clear with yourself and reminding yourself of like, this isn't for that purpose. This is for my enjoyment of my mother child relationship with my kids right now, you know? And so I can still enjoy it and have fun, but I can't do that when I'm being pulled by my other desire to just be, I don't know, having fun baking by myself. Do you know what I mean? I don't know Yeah, if that's helpful at all, but no, I, I think that totally makes sense. And I think I love how you've removed, you know, any fear from it of like, well, this isn't productive or this isn't whatever. It's like, you're going to do this for them and then you're going to do this for you. And so what if that's the same thing twice? It doesn't matter. You know, you're meeting your needs. You could not bake the second batch of cookies. You could like go have a dance party or put a face mask on or it doesn't matter what the thing is, you know? And I think the other thing about being good at the thing in front of you is that a lot of times, you know, I think when it comes to play or parents having agendas around play, it's because they're parenting from that place of fear where I want my kids to be good at XYZ. I want to see them share. I want to see them learn. I want whatever. But if you're in that moment and you're just enjoying whatever that is and whatever it looks like, and your goal is to enjoy them and your goal isn't to instruct or teach or whatever, you're not kind of a hammer looking for a nail where you are viewing that interaction through the lens of like, are they going to be in school one day able to play with other kids or are they going to be able to hold a job one day, you know, as an adult? Mm-hmm. And or what know, does it mean about my kids that they don't like Lego and all the other kids like Lego and they never touch their Lego? Like, <laughs> yes, 100%. So I think, you know, there's a lot that can just be shaved off. And it's realizing that none of that serves you. It's realizing that we struggle so much with simplicity and how much we overcomplicate everything, you know, and learning that and really knowing it truly, because if you think you're just supposed to do it, but but you think you know better that they really do need to learn, you know, then (laughs) that's still going to come at you. It's still going to interpret the way that you handle things. Absolutely. And it robs you of the enjoyment of it too. Like it robs you of the opportunity to enjoy. And then I think on the flip side, like parents need to give themselves permission to hold boundaries around those things. So for example, with the baking thing that I enjoy, if I'm baking for a purpose where the birthday cake has to turn out because a five-year-old is depending on it as they turn six, you know, or whatever. I don't let my kids do it. I say we can bake another cake another time, but this cake I have to do on my own. Or if I'm working with a complicated recipe, like I can hold those boundaries with confidence. I mean, so like getting clear, I think with yourself about like, okay, what is my goal here? Is my goal to teach my kids something? Is my goal to enjoy my kids? Like, what is it my goal in this moment? Is it my goal for my kids to feel seen and heard and feel the beautiful gift of my presence, my mindful attention on them? Or is my goal, you know, something else, you know, is my goal to get them started on an activity so that I can do X, Y, Z you know, do my yoga or whatever that I want to do. Like, I think really getting clear on our goals can help with that, but we do have to give ourselves permission. You know, I love that we've been talking about how it doesn't need to be an obligation, you know, that it doesn't 
that when we remove the obligation, then we free ourselves up to actually enjoy it. Yeah. I know you're going to offer suggestions and stuff. And I know this isn't in the segment for that, but like one of the things that if I feel like I'm getting off track and I've been too bogged down by life for whatever reason, because believe me, like I'm not a robot in my home all the time, you know, (laughs) even though it would be more fun is I try to take a couple sections of a day in our normal rhythm and I try to find a creative way to do them just to shake things up. You know, like, of course, for me, I lean into what I'm good at. So am I going to, you know, cook a whole meal with my kids and we're all going to try to speak in rhyme? Or, you know, am I going to like walk backwards while putting away toys or, you know, whatever the thing is. And I think if you can figure out a way for yourself to kind of have a roadmap to what that's going to look like, because you don't have to reinvent the wheel every day, you know, just think like, what if I just serve dinner and I talk like a monkey or something, or like, I just try to bark to communicate with them. You know, I think that there can be some framework to play for us as adults, because I think sometimes we need a little bit more instruction to get acclimated to the idea while still giving our kids freedom to respond in the way that they want, as long as it's not the times that they are being the ones directing the play. Yeah. Because, you know, when it's our time, it's just our everyday life. Like you can give it a little thought ahead of time. You know, I think feeling like fun has to be spontaneous feels like a lot of pressure. And I know for me, when I'm bogged down with life, sometimes actually making it item my to-do list helps. Like, okay, I want to remember, what could I do, you know, that's going to make dinner time a little more fun? What can I do that's going to, you know, make brushing teeth a little bit more fun? And I think once you kind of start to adopt those practices and play around with them in a way that's maybe a little clinical at first, because it's unfamiliar, but you see your kids get a kick out of it, that they contribute in a different way. And it gets a little easier to do next time. And it gets a little easier to do next time. And then they start to expect it and they start to lead, which takes the pressure off you. And that's how it starts to become the culture of a home. If you haven't previously been, you know, engaging in that way, because it can feel daunting. It absolutely can feel daunting. And like, so we've been talking a lot about how for both of us, you know, playfulness and fun maybe didn't come naturally at first. And it's so important to know that it's a skill. And just like any new skill, it feels awkward at first. It feels clunky at first. It feels unnatural at first. If you're a righty and you start writing with your left hand because your right hand is broken, like you're going to write awkwardly for a while. It's going to feel awful. And like, you just got to keep going, keep practicing, keep building that muscle of playfulness too. And not from a fake it to make it perspective, but like a little bit of planfulness of let's not leave it all to chance. If we know we're not easily inspired or can't think on our feet of something playful to do in the moment, why not have like a little list of things that we can do to make getting shoes on easier in the morning or more fun in the morning? Like, I mean, when kids are grumping about bedtime and they're not getting in bed to read with me, I start reading in a British accent. I'm a, I have a terrible British accent, but my kids don't necessarily know that or care, but they think it's amazing that British mommy is coming out and, you know, they quick get their teeth brushed and hop into bed for reading. You know, that's something that I planned that I did on purpose because I don't think on my feet well. I always have like when I sit down with the rhythm of our day and look at places where things have felt clunky or have been met with resistance, then I start thinking about like, okay, so how could I make this more fun? How could I call them in? How could I invite them in to this? How could I make this a little bit easier on them to do some of the things we have to do? It's okay to think ahead. You don't, it doesn't have to be all spontaneous. Yes, you know. Yeah. And I think too that, you know, for those parents who've had their kids home and they're planning activities and they're going on Pinterest and 
you know, they're putting that kind of thought into creating an environment for their kids. Just flip the script, do that for yourself. Like they might not need that, but you might in a way. So take that level of research and take that level of forethought and leave them some open-ended objects, but now, you know, sit and browse the internet for ideas or sit with a pen and paper and think like, what if I wasn't trying to set them up for success so much as myself? Because, you know, play is the language of children and we want to speak to them in terms that they understand. You know, I think sometimes parents, you know, they should just listen. I don't want to have to make it fun, but like they're going to understand the necessity of things and the way that household needs to run or things that we have to do to take care of ourselves or whatever the case is. If you speak and deliver that information to them in a way that they're already communicating. So it's not, you know, I don't want to play like the arbitrary flex game where, well, I just want them to brush their teeth because I said they have to brush their teeth. Like, I don't want to brush my teeth. Like, I can't expect something from them, Yeah, you know, that isn't always something that I want to do. But I think, you know, bringing that into your home and prepping yourself ahead of time. And then honestly, like, the thing that keeps me going is seeing how responsive they are to it. Like it is one of the few areas in parenting where you usually get instant gratification. And yeah. that doesn't always mean cooperation because and- I'm not always doing that to get my kids to do something. But when you see how ready they are and primed they are to engage in fun, it's just like, oh, thank goodness. Like you just know it's the right thing to do versus like some of the foundational things that you do with your kids that they can't stand like holding a boundary or, you know, whatever the case is. And you're not going to see that payoff for who knows how long. This is like play pays. So I think that makes it a little bit easier of a sell than some of the other parenting concepts, you know, that people are like, oh man. I know. And I mean, it does feel like effortful at times, but you're so right. The payoff is there and not necessarily the payoff in the, like, I get asked all the time. Okay. So how long is it going to take for this to work? You know, we're not talking about it working, but we are talking about the look in their eyes. I mean, the skill of making mundane daily tasks fun and enjoyable, that's a beautiful life skill you know, that young children naturally have and that we kind of get it trained out of us, I think. And by modeling, like I sing a folding song while I'm folding laundry to keep myself entertained. Like that's just a good skill, you know? So why not make it fun? You know, and when I was early in my parenting days and I was new to kind of really deeply diving into respectful parenting, it felt so serious. And at the same time, I was a practicing play therapist because I was getting my PhD. And those two things just felt sometimes like, at odds. Like it didn't seem respectful to get a kid to do something through play. It felt like tricking them. We should have this direct one-on-one communication. They should just do it because, you know, we've been respectful and we have a good relationship. And I felt like that was some of the message I was getting from the respectful parenting world. And it was really at odds with what I knew about play and about playfulness. And so I really just came to this conclusion that if play is the language of childhood, which it is. It's how they learn. It's how they process. It's how they express themselves, especially when they are still learning their verbal language. What it could possibly be more respectful than to speak the language of the person you're with. There's nothing more respectful than that. We think about like when we go to a foreign country, like it's so respectful to learn their language and be able to speak it to them. You know, there's nothing more respectful than speaking kids language and that's play, you know? Well, I mean, that sort of the whole driving force behind me deciding to take up space on the internet was I felt like there was a lot of fun missing from 
this space. And I thought, how can we help parents bring the fun to parenthood that children so naturally bring to childhood? Yes. Like, oh why God. is there such a disconnect? It's because are there people out there on the internet who maybe think that I'm juvenile or, you know, I want it to be fun with an academic pillar is like, when I think about, you know, what I have to bring to the table, I want people to know that my fun is supported by science. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really crucial for people to be able to take it seriously and get on board. But like, I'm here to have a good time. I like my kids. I want to spend time with them. I want to enjoy them. I want them to enjoy me. And we all learn better. If we know that kids learn better through play, maybe adults do too. Maybe Absolutely. I can, you know, bring some of these concepts while you have a good time. It does not have to be drudgery. And I think sometimes in the respectful parenting world, I've seen it elevated to the point that it starts to feel inaccessible. It starts to feel like if you're not an academic, if you're not, you know, really serious mm-hmm. and a huge reader, that this stuff isn't for you. And I just don't think that that's the case. Oh. So I'm trying to shake things up a little bit and, and say like, this isn't so far apart, the way mm-hmm. the kids learn and the way that grownups learn. Say that all the time to my clients, like you really believe your kids don't learn best in a, a context of blame, shame, and guilt. Why on earth are you blaming, shaming, and guilting yourself in your own head? You know, like, yeah. but yes, I love this. So Ayanda, you are bringing something new and flavorful and fun to the respectful parenting world. That's so needed. You're very inspiring. And I'm so glad that you are here with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast and if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of, um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.